I really wished when I reflected on the whole experience that I had appreciated it and enjoyed it more. I was like super focused on trying to make it to the big leagues, make a bunch of money and be successful in that way. And it wasn't until I was actually done that I was able to look back and go, you know what? I was pretty good at that. I probably should have enjoyed it more. on average read 60 books per year. Many attribute their professional success to this persistent quest for new wisdom and innovative excellence. MentorBox makes it easy for you to develop that same high-achieving habit of lifelong learning. As a person of action, you know that true ingenuity is the result of deep, deep knowledge. And just by listening to this podcast, you are working toward your goals every single day. If you are ready to wholly embrace this mindset, this 1% better every day, then check in every Monday, Wednesday, and Friday for new episodes. And if you want to dive deeper into the teachings of our guests, become a member at mentorbox.com today. There, we'll be publishing a course from Mike Robbins. Mike is an author, keynote speaker, and former professional baseball player. His four books, including the latest Bring Your Whole Self to Work, key in on the characteristics of professional culture that are actually detrimental to productivity, creativity, and success at large. In this conversation, he and I focus in on the importance of vulnerability. Having played sports at the highest level his whole life, Mike has seen the negative effects of suppressing authentic relationships and communication. We dig into how these communities can be improved at both the individual and collective level. He's got some wonderful stories from his time working with clients such as the San Francisco Giants, Google, and a number of Fortune 500s. I hope you enjoy. Hello, 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 and welcome to the MentorBox podcast. I'm your host, Tyler Lay, content coordinator of MentorBox, and today I have Mike Robbins in the studio. Mike, it's wonderful to have you here. Thanks for coming. Hey, thanks for having me. Glad to be here. We just did a wonderful shoot. You did five different lectures, and you taught some really incredible lessons. I want to put a note out there for everybody. Mike is the first person to ever do a mentor box shoot and not have a single flub in the entirety of the, <laughs> of the shoot. You just you just spoke straight through without messing up a single time, and that's going to make all of our jobs so much easier on the back end. So thank you for that, first of all. You're welcome. Wonderful You're welcome. speaker. But I'm most fascinated by your personal story and a lot of the things that you've accomplished. Of course, you know, you're an author and you've spoken for all kinds of different groups and you've worked with different companies, uh, but you also played some professional baseball. I did. Um, you played at Stanford, which is obviously huge, and then you went on and you played at a higher level. And I, I just think it's fascinating that you've worked with, you know, I mean, you haven't worked with, but you've played with like professional athletes and you've also worked with companies as big as, I think, do, have you, uh, you've worked with Google before, yeah. um, you know, to- absolutely top of the line professionals as well. Yeah. And what stuck out to me most in the lessons that you taught are authenticity and I guess vulnerability is one of the things that you focus on as well. Yeah. And you told uh, the story about the Giants, which I'd like you to tell sometime later here. Hunter Pence, I believe, at one of the Giants sure. sort of ceremonies um, of San Francisco baseball Giants. And I just think that in the positions that you have held, they're they're almost antithetical in some ways because athletes today, especially you know male athletes in America, 
are expected to be a certain kind of person, yeah. um, regardless of what sport you're playing. You know, that's a very high level of competition and practice. And you've also you're also teaching these lessons now that that promote a willingness to be vulnerable and to be authentic. And yeah. those two things really clash for me. I want you to yeah. tell me how you do that. <laughs> well, it's inter- I mean, I appreciate you asking, and it's great to be here. We had fun, you know, sh- with the video shoot, and now here on the podcast, mm-hmm. I am. Um, I mean, one of the things for me as an athlete, you know, so I grew up playing baseball and I was, you know, I was pretty good at it, but as I got older, you know, I started at seven playing T-ball. And then as I was moving along, I remember getting into like, I remember being like 12 years old in little league. Mm-hmm. And I was at the time, I mean, I'm not a huge guy. I was like, I was a big kid. I grew faster than some of the other kids. So yeah. like when I was 12 years old playing on a little league diamond, I was like a pitcher that some of the other kids, cause in those days, little league was nine to 12. So I was oh, pitching yeah. against nine and 10 year old kids who would literally cry when they went up to the plate to hit against me. Right. Cause it was like, <laughs> I can't hit this kid, you know? And I sort of, the ego part of me loved that. And then like the sensitive yeah, yeah. part of me felt awful. Like I don't want to make little kids cry, but, but I remember though, even as good as I was at that point, I still had all of this fear and doubt and insecurity inside of me. Right. And I get to high school and like, again, I was a good athlete, but I, you know, and I got an, I got an opportunity to go play at Stanford. My, the fall of my senior year in high school, I committed early to Stanford. So I knew I was wow. going to Stanford, which is a great school, but also a great baseball program. Yeah, that's huge. And, and I get drafted by the Yankees that year out of high school and don't sign with them and then go play at Stanford. And all along the way, I kept hoping and waiting for this moment, even though I was good at what I did, both in school and in sports, that I would, something would click and all of a sudden I would feel like super confident and it like mm-hmm. never happened. Right. Yeah. And I just was, well, and it wasn't that I was not confident, but I just like, I would look at all my teammates in particular and it's like, they didn't look as nervous as I felt inside. Mm-hmm. And I thought, man, there's a disconnect here. I don't know. And I was young. And then, you know, I go in, I get drafted by the Royals out of Stanford and I go in the minor leagues and I end up getting injured. I hurt my arm as a pitcher. And that was a hard experience for me to go through and tried to come back from that experience and wasn't able to make it back. And like the big realization I had when I got injured and then wasn't able to come back and play baseball, as disappointed as I was, I really wished when I reflected on the whole experience that I had appreciated it and enjoyed it more, I was like super focused on trying to make it to the big leagues and make a bunch of money and be successful in that way. And it wasn't until I was actually done that I was able to look back and go, you know what? I was pretty good at that. I probably should have enjoyed it more instead of constantly comparing myself to everyone. Mm -hmm. And the other thing, Tyler, that I didn't realize that I now know through my own personal journey, but working with lots of athletes and business people and really successful people on the surface is like, Everybody feels like that inside. Yeah. Some of us more than others, but we often look at, and now in this social media world, we look at someone on Instagram or on Facebook or on, we go, oh, look at him, look at her. They got it all together. (laughs) Right. And then it makes us feel like there's something wrong with us when in reality, this is why I'm so passionate about vulnerability. It's like when we get real and when people really tell their real stories, you start to realize like, oh, you know what? Everybody's dealing with sure different circumstances, but like similar emotions as human beings yeah. trying to figure stuff out. Absolutely. And if you don't mind, can you tell the story of the Giants and Hunter Pence? I, yeah. I really like that story. Yeah, yeah. Just very quickly because I Absolutely. Know, I well, it's so, I mean, the Giants, you know, we're sitting here in San Francisco recording this podcast. The, of course. You know, the Giants have been a client of mine since 2010. Yeah. They invited me in that first, that season and that they won the World Series in 2010, which anybody who follows baseball, particularly if you live here in the Bay Area or in California, you might remember they won and it was a real surprising win. It was the first win for the San Francisco Giants. They moved from New York in the late 50s. 
And so it was a cultural moment here in the Bay Area more than even just a sports moment. Because mm-hmm. they're like my father-in-law was 13 when the Giants moved. Oh, and, wow. you know, he lived lived still lived in Marin County, a little north of San Francisco. So for for them to win was like he couldn't believe it. And mm-hmm. so many people were like that. They won again in 2012. They won again in 2014. Each of their championships, it was surprising because they have good talent, but by far not the best. And they weren't supposed to win. And they so but one of the things that I've learned working with the Giants over the last number of years is they really made a commitment. And still do, even though they haven't had as much success in the last couple of years on chemistry and culture and caring about each other. And so mm-hmm. the two moments, and I shared this in the video course that we just recorded, that it epitomized this for me. At the end of the 2013 season, Hunter Pence, who still plays for the Giants at the time, was you know all-star player, really important guy, got voted on by the team. They give, they give out this award called the Willie Mack Award. It's actually named after Willie McCovey, the great oh, yeah. Hall of Famer for the Giants who played in the 60s and 70s. And Hunter gets the award. And I'm at the ballpark, the last series of the year, they always give it out the Friday night game of the last series. And he gets the award and he gets up to speak to the whole, you know, everyone in the stadium and all his teammates. He thanks everyone. He tells some jokes. He's a pretty charismatic guy. But then he gets serious towards the end of the speech and he looks in at his teammates and he says, I want each and every one of you to know that I love you. And he said, I know some of you get uncomfortable when I say that because you think it's soft. He said, I don't think it's soft. In fact, I think it's the most important thing that we have. Mm -hmm. And I was in the ballpark that night and I was really touched by him saying that so openly, so passionately, so vulnerably, like it's not the normal thing you hear pro athletes say to their teammates, especially publicly in front of a lot of people. And they weren't celebrating a championship. They weren't, you know, it was the end of a disappointing season for them. They weren't going back to the playoffs after winning the world series in 2010 and 2012. Fast forward though, to the next season, the end of the next season, 2014, they're back in the world series. It's game seven on the road in Kansas city, right? Tying run on third base, the bottom of the ninth inning, Madison Bumgarner's on the mound, two outs. He gets the final out of the World Series. He had an unbelievable postseason that year, particularly in the World Series. They get the final out. They win their third championship in five years, which is incredible. And as the game, as they're about to celebrate, Bumgarner, this big burly guy, you know, six foot four, 200 and whatever pounds from North Carolina, goes to hug Buster Posey, who's a pretty strong, tough dude from Georgia himself. These two manly men embrace each other in the middle of the diamond before the team comes to jump on top and celebrate. And Mm -hmm. right as they're embracing, Bumgarner leans over, and whispers into Posey's ear, I love you. Mm-hmm. And I'm sitting in Arizona in a hotel room because I had a speaking engagement there watching the game on television. I'm super excited that they won. But that moment right there when I saw them do that, I was like, that's it. Like, that's that's part of the magic of what makes them a championship team. And more than just about the San Francisco Giants and about baseball, my experience has taught me both, both as an athlete and now over the last 18 years of working with teams and groups of all kinds when you can create that kind of environment where people really care about each other as human beings, mm-hmm. extraordinary things can happen in terms of the results and the outcome. When you don't create that kind of environment, even when people are super smart and talented, it's very difficult to create success or, and or to su- sustain it when that, there isn't that personal connection amongst the people involved. Mm-hmm. I feel like we have a lot of experts that join MentorBox and point out the same same thing that in professional settings, any sort of team setting, but especially in workspaces and even on sports teams, we've worked with a couple coaches. Yeah. What they see a lot is that there's an expectation among the team members that they're not supposed to behave that way. They're actually supposed to avoid behaving that way because, right. you know, being too emotional is being not logical enough in a lot of cases. Yeah. Um, or it, it allows you to get distracted very easily. And, you know, I, this makes some sense in sports, but I think we kind of extrapolate how we're supposed to like behave on the field in the game right. to how we're supposed to be as as 
teammates and, and individuals, and right. that seems to sort of get conflated. And also, there's a a lot of just you know cultural things about being a you know a professional athlete or an athlete of any sort. Yeah. But I think it's really remarkable. You and I seem to have similar feelings about our times playing sports. I only played through high school, but we were very serious. You know, we won a, a football championship. We made it to the finals of baseball. Our basketball team sucked, but I played all three <laughs> sports. And um, I, like, I, I have dreams about those high school games all the time, like yeah. multiple times a week sometimes if I'm, if I'm playing a lot of sports because I really do miss those things. And I, I, I did have a lot of fun playing them, but I wish that I had been able to enjoy them more. Yeah. There were some things that made it difficult, like coaching and, sure. and whatnot. But at the end of the day, what the mostly what I remember from those seasons and playing those sports is, you know, the, the good times that I had with my teammates yeah. and how great we were together. But we never really had we were never vulnerable with each other. We were just we were just kind of like assholes. We were just like, you yeah. know, like sports players, like, hey, right. let's like let's shout at people off the field while we practice and yeah. let's, you know, drive around the town at the end of the night when we win and well, and, and part of that, I would say, look, I mean, I had that experience in a lot of ways growing up as an athlete, but I also think it's some of the way we socialize as men. Oh, yeah, absolutely. I think women do a much better job building relationships and connections with each other. Mm-hmm. And I see this play out both in the working world and just in life in general. And when, when I walk into work with a team or, or an organization, when there's not a ton of gender diversity, one of the things usually is the case, and this is a bit of a stereotype, but usually is the case is there's not a ton of connection and empathy and the the premium of yeah. focusing on the relationships. You know, again, I joke sometimes about, you know, some of my work focuses on the importance of appreciation. Mm-hmm. And one of the ways that men express appreciation for each other is we make fun of each other. Oh, yeah. So if, if a guy really likes you, he'll rip on you. Oh, you're fat and ugly and stupid. Oh, and I always yeah. like <laughs> that never felt good to me as a kid. But I was always the no. thing about, you know, this is growing up. It's like if you say something about it, it's like, hey, that hurt my feelings. Then it's 10 times worse because then they pile on you for what are you yeah. soft? What are you a wimp? Oh, I hurt your feelings. Oh, you yeah. know. With much more colorful language. <laughs> yes, exactly. Well, and the thing is, though, again, we've we've evolved in some ways, but I think sometimes in the business world, because a lot of our early experiences in school and in sports, like that's how we learned how to be social and be in teams. Yeah, it gets into, and this isn't a conversation so much about political correctness or or even the conversation around diversity and inclusion that's so important on so many levels, especially today. It's really understanding like what do human beings really need to thrive? Yeah. And one of the things, and I I talked about this in the video course, but like this study that Google did a few years ago called the Aristotle Project, Mm -hmm. they really looked at what are the key conditions to create high performance for teams. And they studied this for three years and a lot of really smart, talented people came in and looked at a lot of data and information. And they found out that the number one component that's important for teams to thrive is what they call psychological safety. And psychological safety is basically trust at a group level, right? It means the team, the group is safe enough for me to make make a mistake, take a risk, mm-hmm. have a conflict, do something different, try something new. And I'm not going to get kicked out of the group simply for dissenting or failing or whatever. Right. Yeah. And, and again, if you think about it, even to think about in a sports environment, if you know, the people around you have your back, this is true in families, you know, mm-hmm. it's like, Hey, we can disagree. We can argue, we can get upset with each other. But like at the end of the day, there's a sense of connection and loyalty then we're more likely to be honest. We're more likely to speak up. We're more likely to take risks. And when that doesn't exist, if we're afraid, oh, if I try this or do this, they'll laugh at me. They'll make fun of me. They won't understand me, whatever. We're going to sort of keep our cards close to the vest. And and my experience and my research has taught me that like 
that creates a lot of problems for us at work and in life and with teams. And so whatever we can do to make it as easy as possible, I say to leaders all the time, look, you don't have to be vulnerable, but if you're not, it's going to make it 10 times harder for the people on your team to be that way with you. Of course. Right. But if you show up authentically and even vulnerably, like you're willing to admit mistakes, you're willing to share a little bit more about your life, about your story, about some of your insecurities, like the normal human stuff, you'll create an environment where people will do that. If you don't do that, again, the leader often sets the tone. Mm -hmm. So most companies, whether there's five people or 5,000 or 50,000 people, the leaders in the organization or within any particular team, the leader of that particular team is going to set the tone for what's acceptable, what's not acceptable in terms of how we interact on a human level. Yeah. So when I think about those numbers that you just gave, you know, five, 550,000 employees, yeah. that sort of thing, it, I can't help but get pictures in my mind of those, like those companies and what yes. they look like um, and how they operate. And when I think about, you know, tr the truly giant, you know, entities out there, business entities and companies, I, it's just things get so complex and so difficult at a yes. high level of business operation yeah. that the stakes are so incredibly high. Yeah. You ultimately need to have some sort of, you need to have characteristics that enable you to deal with those sorts you of do. things. And historically, I think this goes back to what we were addressing earlier, um, the way men are socialized, that sort of thing. But I think historically those characteristics because of the history of, you know, business institutions are masculine characteristics. They are, are deeply masculine characteristics. The ability sure. to, you know, I mean, just like selling in particular, I think has a, a pretty strong history of that. But everything from, you know, being stoic and, and sealing massive deals and making those negotiations and just the attitude around all of that and the culture all around that. Yeah. Ten, tends to be in general of a masculine history. And yeah. I think it, it's kind of a neat transition, if you will, from, you know, sports, <laughs> like that sort of attitude of like high stakes, like we got to win the championship. We have yeah. to be this sort of stoic. We have to avoid being too emotional and getting distracted. It, it transitions kind of neatly into business as yes. well. And yeah. it seems like you're kind of, you've not, not fought both battles maybe, but it seems like you're you're navigating both of those realms yeah. in that way. Well, you know, it's funny. I mean, just as you're saying this, I have a friend of mine who's a, a fellow author and speaker, and she and I talk all the time, and she'll sometimes get mad at me. She'll call me up on the phone, and she'll say, you make me sick, or what, what do you mean? She goes, <laughs> and she goes, well, listen, I just, I'm like, thank you. Nice, yeah, but she's like, I just read your blog post, or I saw this video, or your TED Talk, or whatever. She goes, you're just, you know, so she goes, you're just basically teaching and talking about what a lot of women understand intuitively. Yeah. Yeah, but yeah, people yeah. think that it's so deep and amazing because you're a guy. And I'm like, <laughs> well, thanks, I guess, for the comp. I don't know. But it's funny because I do think in some ways, as we're talking about sort of masculine traits, I mean, I was raised by a yeah. single mom with an older sister. You know, my wife is a huge influence on me. We have two daughters. Like, I've had a lot of really strong and important females in my life mm -hmm. who've mentored me and taught me. And so I don't know. I mean, I and I think I look at the world, obviously I'm male and can't be female, but I look at the world and try to understand on a human level. You know, another interesting aspect of my background is I grew up in Oakland, just across the bridge from where we're sitting right now. Yeah. You know, I'm a straight white guy, but I spent most of my formative years, not only raised by a single mom, but most of my friends and teammates on most of the teams I played on, particularly by the time I got to high school, like mm -hmm. I was the only white kid on the basketball team. I was the only white kid in the entire league. Wow. And like, I was aware of that. And most of us as white people don't have the experience of being 
a minority or an other, if you will, for a significant, maybe you go to an event or you're somewhere and you're like, oh, I'm the only white person here. Oh, most there's a bunch of people who are African-American or Asian or, Mm -hmm. you know, Latino or whatever, but it's, it's like a moment in time. I mean, my social structure was set up in a way that I was in the minority Mm -hmm. and there were some challenges to it, but I learned a ton and it wasn't until like I went to Stanford and then it was like the vast majority of people were white. And I was, people would say, what's it like at Stanford? And I'd say, well, I've never been around this many white people before. And it was kind of like a joke, but it was interesting for me because looking back on it now, what I realize, I now am very aware of the fact that I'm a straight white man and what that means in America and in our culture. But I'm also Mm -hmm. aware of not to, I don't mean to minimize what other people's experiences are because I don't know, but I do have some visceral experience of that that I think gives me a certain amount of understanding and empathy. I can't be anybody but who I am, but to try to understand that like not everybody sees the world the same way. Not everybody comes from the same background. And my work is all about where do we find common ground as human beings? Because Mm -hmm. even again, the star athlete, you know, back to when I was playing, you know, one of my favorite days of the baseball season, even from the time I was really little was the last day. Usually on the last day of the season, you would lose, right? I loved winning and sometimes we'd win a championship and that was great. But more often than not, Unless you won the championship, you lost, and the season was over, and it was the last game. And as it was long always, as you made it to the playoffs. Yeah, <laughs> assuming you made it to the playoffs. But even if you didn't make it to the playoffs, it, the season was over. And usually what yeah. would happen, especially if it was like the playoffs, and you lost a tough game and got eliminated and it was over, you probably remember this from playing sports, kids would cry. Right? Oh, yeah, for sure. And, and I don't know about you, but I was raised with this whole boys don't cry, suck it up, be a man. But on that day, in that moment when everyone would cry, most everybody would cry, even sometimes the meanest, toughest kid on the team who I was a little scared of, he would cry too. And nobody made fun of you. It yeah, was like, you, it right? Was fine. <laughs> it was okay. But I would yeah. look and go, oh, like they feel like that too. I'm not crazy. Yeah. Right. Because I was this like sensitive, emotional kid that spent a lot of time trying to suck that all in and be all whatever I thought I was supposed to be. And again, not everybody's makeup is like mine, but I think way more people, both male and female, have this emotional, sensitive experience inside. And then we go to work or we, show up online or do whatever. And we think we have to sort of put that in some neat package to present to the world. And I actually believe the opposite is true. Like, yes, do we need to be appropriate in certain situations or professional? Mm -hmm. Yeah. But I think a lot of times we do ourselves a disservice. And again, whether it, and back to the company thing, I mean, I've seen companies of, you know, you mentioned Google earlier, Google's had its fair share of challenges and growing pains as they've gotten so big. But one of the amazing things that, and I've been partnering with Google for like eight years now, I've been to 15 of their offices around the world. Mm -hmm. You walk into a Google office, it could be in Buenos Aires, it could be in New York City, it could be here in the Bay Area in San Francisco or Mountain View, it could be anywhere. And like, there is a vibe to that place. You know exactly where you are. Mm -hmm. And there's something about it as unique and diverse as it is. They've built a culture around this is who we are, this is how we operate, this is what's important. And both with how it looks, but also how it feels. And part of the commitment that they have there, even with their challenges, is that like, you can be yourself and express yourself. Like you don't have to fit into a box. In mm-hmm. fact, we don't want you to fit into a box because part of the magic of that company and their growth has been allowing people to be creative and innovative and diverse in how they express themselves. Hey, I hate to interrupt this conversation with Mike Robbins, but I want to let you know where you can learn more about improving your professional workspace and culture. He recorded a full series of videos on his book, Bring Your Whole Self to Work. But per usual, That course is exclusively for MentorBox members. If you want access to that and much, much more, be sure to visit MentorBox.com today. Okay, back to the show. How do you think about your teaching? I mean, from a lot of the research that I've done on 
education is through the lens of critical pedagogy, which is just a sphere that believes very strongly that you have to teach toward the individual more than the collective, you yes. know, if you're talking about students. How like do you have ways of doing that in your in your lessons? Like you just gave a you know a video lesson that's <laughs> right. gonna be just you know collectively disseminated, but the way that you taught it definitely you know, focuses on how the individual should act and how they should treat others, especially, you know, friends and yeah. close relationships and that sort of thing. But do you also believe that it's necessary to make those individual connections wherever possible? I do. I mean, part of the way, you know, so I, I, I deliver a lot of keynote speeches, so big events, big groups of people, but I also do some workshops and seminars with smaller groups. Sometimes it'll even be like just yesterday I was with a team of eight people and I spent a few hours with them, just their intact leadership team. But what I'm always trying to do, and I don't come from an education background, right? I come from a sports background. I spent yeah. a couple of years working in the tech world, and then I've been doing this for 18 years. So I don't think of it in terms of curriculum or pedagogy per se. I more think of it in terms of I'm fundamentally, I'm a storyteller. Mm -hmm. And so I like telling stories personally from just communicating. But I also found early on that when I would get up on stage, whether I was in front of a thousand people or five people or anywhere in between, if I told a story, a personal story, a real story of my own experience or someone that I knew, I just would notice people would kind of open up. Mm -hmm. And then the other thing that I noticed is if I got people talking, thinking and talking and feeling something themselves. So like as corny as it is, the sort of motivational speaker that says, turn to your neighbor and blah, blah. Right. <laughs> I try not to be too corny about it, but I try to ask questions or frame things where I can, even in a room full of a thousand people, get people to make a personal connection with someone else in the room to talk about or think about something that I want them to walk away with something. But I've also learned that it's not my job to know exactly what that thing is supposed to be. Sure. So if I speak to a room of a couple hundred people, there might be literally dozens of different things that they take away based on what I'm talking about, based on what's going on in their life, in their job, in whatever they're facing. And if I do a good job of sharing ideas and connect stories to them and then give people potentially an opportunity to think about it and even talk about it in the moment, they'll probably walk away with something that's useful and valuable for them. So that's how I try to customize it to the individuals, even and especially when I'm in a super diverse environment or like I travel, I grew up here in the Bay Area. So my worldview is very Californian. It's very Bay Area. So if I go to Boston, like where you grew up, or if I go to, you know, New York, or if I go to Chicago or Texas or wherever, people are different there. If I travel outside of yeah. the US, people are really different. Like, I don't know what it's like to live in London or to live in you know, India, but like, I know what it's like to be me and I know what it's like to be human. Mm -hmm. So I'm always trying to get to that place. And one of the other things I've learned, this is kind of an answer to your question, but in my own experience of getting feedback from people after when I know I've really done the job that I want to do with a group of people, people will come up to me afterwards and it won't be praise about me. Mm -hmm. It'll be them sharing something with me about them. Yeah. So there's three types of feedback. One, well, one type of feedback is nothing, which is never great, but you could get <laughs> negative feedback like that sucked or I didn't like that or why'd you talk about this or I was offended by it, whatever. That happens sometimes. There's positive feedback like, hey, you were really great or that was really funny or that was really interesting or inspiring, which is nice to hear. But that's more if I'm if I get more of that feedback, I know I was probably a little more nervous and coming from my ego mm -hmm. doing the show, trying to impress them. If people come up to me yeah. after and they say, hey, man, you know, um, my grandmother and then they start telling me some story or, you yeah, know, yeah, yeah. I'm my, my boss or my wife or my son, or I'm dealing with this, or what, what about this? Or I learn that they start opening up and sharing something real with me. Then I, I, 
what I'm able to assume from that is that they got something and I was somehow effectively able to open my own heart, share something real, authentic that touched them. And then they can do something with that. Have you heard the name Carmine Gallo by any chance? I haven't. He, he was with us about a month or a month and a half ago. Um, he wrote, he's written like nine books on communication, but he used to be a news anchor for CNN. And oh, really? um, now he owns his own like communication consultation group. And his, his second most recent book is called Talk Like Ted. And it's about Ted oh. Talks. Um, I've seen the book. I didn't know that, that he was the author. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And he, he does a very robust analysis of many, many different major speakers. Um, and the, the way that he formulates things is he actually breaks down a speech like word by word and decides which words uh, belong in different categories of purpose. And he goes through the, um, the I think it's the Aristotelian ethos, logos, and pathos. Nice. And pathos is storytelling ultimately and it's about 65% he's found that um, belongs in that category of pathos in, insofar as what impacts the audience most. Yes. So the story is ultimately the most important thing if you can make that connection that really gets somebody else thinking like, oh, my grandma, or like right. this or that. It's that connection. In well, you life. know, on that, when I, when I prepare for a speech now, and I've been doing this for many years, right? And I, I don't particularly, I was a kind of kid in school, like, I don't know how you were as a student, but like, I would write my paper on the last day. Yeah, right. Do. I didn't. I, I was just good at it though. Yeah, I'm good at doing that. I know the bad part is it's bad when you do it and then you get an A and then you go, well, this is the way I do <laughs> I'm it. Gonna right? do it forever. <laughs> but like, I, I never really liked to study. I never really liked to prepare. In, in as an athlete, I never really loved practice. I practiced because we had to, and I'd yeah. get in trouble if I didn't show up. I liked the game. But so one of the things for years, I always kind of thought like, oh, I'm sort of flaky, or I should do more prep, or I should. But the truth is now what I do when I prepare for a speech, I mean, I'll talk to the client on the phone and I'll sometimes do a bunch of interviews with people and I get a sense of all. But sometimes I'll get booked like a year in advance. I'll do a little bit of pre-work and have those conversations, but I'll be sitting on the plane or in the in the hotel room before making jotting some notes down. And sometimes the little voice in my head is like, dude, you're a flake. You should have done this a long time ago. Why are you, you know, they pay, they're paying you all this money to come, you should, whatever. But the truth of it is what I actually am doing is I usually make a couple of lists the first list that I make is what stories or examples could I share with this group based on what I know about them that I think will resonate with them. And it's literally just a long laundry list of a bunch of different stories and examples from my own life, from my experience. Yeah. Then I make a list of what are their challenges that I know that they're facing from what I've heard. And then I make another list of what are the goals that from what I've gathered. And I do all that. And then I'll make a little short outline. I put that in a little folder that I maybe bring up on stage and put on the podium that I never look at, but it's, that's mm -hmm. my process. And then I literally walk in the room and I know this sounds, it might sound a little strange, but it's like part of why I don't hardly ever use PowerPoint is because I try to get a sense from even being in the room, <laughs> what's needed. And sometimes I'll be on stage and I'll be in the middle and I'll start to tell this story about my dad. And I'll be like, that wasn't on my list. I wasn't thinking about this. Why the heck am I telling this story about my dad? <laughs> and I'll do it. And then dozens of people will come up to me and like, Oh, I'm so glad you told that story about your dad. Mm -hmm. Or that's, it reminded me of this or my uncle did that or whatever. And then I'll go, oh, it's like it's this weird sense of like trusting my own gut and intuition. Mm -hmm. And back to the point about the story being the most important. I've had people that I'll, they'll bump into them at the airport or they'll see me at something and they're like, you're the guy that told the story about the thing. And it's like they won't remember my name or what the heck I was talking about, but they remember the story. Yeah, right? They're yeah. like, that was. And then I went home and I told my wife that story or I told my kids or, you know, my team, whatever. And it's like, wow, stories really matter. And I think in today's world, with all of the we're inundated with so much Mm -hmm. Right. 
I mean, think of even podcasts, right? I think about it's funny about podcasts. Podcasts about 15 years ago started to be a thing. And people are like, oh, you got a podcast. And then it was like, it got hot for a little while. And then it went away. And we're like, oh, no, it's all video now. Yeah. And so we went away from podcasting. And then everybody was into video because video was the thing. But podcasting in the last six or seven years has made this yeah, huge resurgence. And part of what we realize is, A, people want to hear other people's stories. Mm-hmm. It's long form content, which on the one hand doesn't make sense because our attention span is so short these days. <laughs> But it's it's also passive. Yeah, you can passive. you can listen to it while you're people listening to us right now on the train, in the car, on a run, at the gym, like cook or cook sort of or thing. whatever. But you but the thing is, we can go a little more in depth and have a real conversation about life, about stories. On my own podcast that I host, I'm literally just asking people questions about their journey through their career. Mm-hmm. What have they learned? What have been some pitfalls? How do they try to bring their whole selves to work? What's hard about that? And we're just you know, and, and people want to hear that, I think, because I say to people all the time who come and talk to me about how can I, uh, break through in my, if they're wanting to write or speak or whatever. And I say, look, I don't know. I don't know that there's a formula, but like your story is the most important and unique thing about you. Mm-hmm. The ideas, the principles, as important as I think all my work is and my four books and whatever, like, I don't think the principles and concepts in and of themselves are earth shattering. But I think my story and my own experience and what I can bring to it, that's where the magic happens ultimately. And mm-hmm. I think that's true for all of us. I think you're hitting on something really unique here. Um, like I said, we've spoken with Carmine Gallo and uh, a number of other people who I mean, many of our guests speak publicly and that sort of thing. Yes. But a few of them are dedicated toward teaching and coaching others to speak publicly and yeah. to be successful in that realm. And they emphasize practicing of course and you know you got to get out there and you got to do the thing like the only way to get better is to put yourself in front of people even if it's rehearsing and that sort of thing but it also seems like you are kind of at another level where you've done this so much that you've developed you you said the word intuition like you you make a list of what stories might work for these folks or what they might want to hear but there's also a matter of you get into the room and you you like almost sense the vibe the aura and then you actually might tell a certain story based on what you see or how you feel or like initial responses you get is that right it's true i mean and it is it is a little weird sometimes when i talk about it because some people i mean for some people this sounds insane to them i mean based on again what we're talking about. And if it's something really technical and very specific, I do admire. Sometimes I see some of my colleagues and friends and even just business people who get up with a fantastic PowerPoint presentation, slides that are amazing and super technical, incredible stuff. And I'm like, wow, I don't even know if I could communicate that way because that's just not my style or approach. For me, I mean, one of my early mentors was a guy named Lee Glickstein. And he wrote a book called Be Heard Now. And he lives here in the Bay Area. And I went and did some coaching sessions with him. This was, you know, 17, 18 years ago. And Lee's belief about public speaking was that so much of the power of the speaker really comes from the listening in the room. Yeah. Which is true, right? I mean, again, in today's world where everyone's on their smartphones and I mean, I can be up there on stage speaking. And if I'm looking out at the audience and most of the people are staring at their phone, maybe they're tweeting something I'm saying, most likely they're checking their email or sports scores or Facebook or whatever. (laughs) It's difficult to communicate to a group of people when they're not paying attention to you. We've all had that experience. But what Lee said, the master communicators know how to get people's attention, Mm -hmm. keep their attention, and then ride the wave, so to speak, of the listening in the room. Yes, right. that's that's kind of what's unique here is that you're actually – saying that there's 
something that you can adapt to as the speaker. Yes. In a sense. And, and the tricky part is this is where it does look. It is. And I find this for me personally, it's fun and it's, it's risky and it's a challenge. And sometimes <laughs> it goes really well. So it doesn't usually crash and burn, but sometimes it doesn't go as well, but you practice it over time and you get yeah. better. And, and I found for myself, the more scripted I used to be because I was nervous, I would forget something or mess up mm-hmm. the less fun I would have. And it felt like the, there wasn't as much life, if you will, in the presentation, and, you know, there are times, and I'll be honest, when I, when I, sometimes I get off stage or I get done with something and I look back and go, you know, if I had been a little crisper, if I had been a little more prepared, that might've gone even better than it did. Mm-hmm. However, I'm willing to risk that for the place where sometimes something really unexpected and extraordinary can happen. And I've had many times where I show up and I'm literally planning to talk about X, Y, and Z. And I sit in the room and sometimes I listen to what other people say and I use mm-hmm. my intuition and I go, you know what? X, Y, and Z is not going to resonate. It's not important. It's not, I know we spent all this time talking about it. I'm not going to veer so far off topic that the people who invited me are going to go, what the hell is he talking about? (laughs) But I'm going to do it in a very different way because I think that's actually going to produce the result that's needed more effectively. And the cool part is, I say this to people all the time, nobody knows what you're planning to say. They only know what you do say. And that's another reason for me to justify my lack of using slides a lot of times. If I have a bunch of slides, I have to talk about that stuff. If I don't, then I can sort of ride the wave of it and see where it goes. Or you have to say, or if you do have slides, you can say, turn it off and say, I'm going to skip mind. these. Yeah. And just move on to what I think yeah. is more relevant or more important is this, you know, that's another big part of uh, talk like Ted actually. And it, I think there are actually rules about how many words you can have if you're doing a PowerPoint slide, yes. or if you're doing PowerPoints, because they don't want you to be that structured in a sense yes you know you can use infographics and all that sort of good stuff but they they emphasize like super creativity where you don't just put words on and have them read you really got to use it as like a supplement as opposed to i um, totally agree with that well and my two favorite ted talks of all time are Brene brown's ted talk on vulnerability both because of the content of it and it's so impactful to me and i must have gotten forwarded that ted talk literally a hundred times yeah. <laughs> within the year that it came out. And, but the thing about that, if you watch her Ted talk, unbelievable, and she's an unbelievable storyteller mm-hmm. and really funny, poignant, a ton of data and information, but use of slides in a really great way. And my yeah. other favorite Ted talk is Elizabeth Gilbert's Ted talk on creativity. And she used no slides at all. It's just her telling stories. Elizabeth Gilbert wrote the great memoir, eat, pray, love. And I watched that Ted talk 20 times when I was writing my third book because I was so stuck. But every time I would watch it, it's basically about creativity is hard. It's scary. It's uncomfortable. But all our job is really to do our job and show up. Mm -hmm. And literally, even though I've heard the stories in that TED Talk so many times, there's something about it that I just I love. And it's the stories that I remember that really make a difference. I haven't seen that one yet. I'm going to have to check it out. check it out. Elizabeth Gilbert. Yeah. I mean, it, and she did it. It's probably almost eight or nine years old now, but I still, I recommend it to people all the time. If you have any creative endeavor that you're trying to put out into the world and you're yeah. stuck with it or you feel bad about it, watch that TED Talk. Cool. It, it's, anyway, I love it. <laughs> we'll, we'll check that one out later. <laughs> yes. Great. Well, before we wrap up, um, I want you to let the folks know where, where else they can hear from you and learn from you. So the book, uh, Bring Your Whole Self to Work. You have a couple others as well. Yeah, so I wrote that one. That was the most recent one. I wrote a book called Nothing Changes Until You Do. Another one called uh, Be Yourself, Everyone Else Has Already Taken. And my very first book, Focus on the Good Stuff, came out over a decade ago. So those are my four books. And you can find out all about the books and about my work at my website, which is mike-robbins.com. Great. Well, thank you so much for joining us today. I'm excited to watch through the footage again. Use <laughs> some editing on it. Um, everybody, thanks so much for tuning in. We'll catch you on the next episode. Cheers.
Thank you so much for listening to the MentorBox podcast. If you want to learn more about what our authors as well as all of our authors teach, make sure to sign up at MentorBox.com. And if you like the MentorBox podcast, please leave us a positive rating and review in Apple Podcasts as that helps us get discovered by more people who will enjoy and be helped by what we do over here at MentorBox. Also, if you think of anyone who would enjoy or be helped by what we do here at MentorBox, be sure to let them know. We do what we do at MentorBox to try to make the world a better place through the incredible education our authors bring. And we can only do that through your help. So please help us spread the word. Again, thanks for listening. And we'll see you in the next MentorBox podcast.